Welcome to the Real Education Podcast. I'm your host, Blake Bowles, and on this show, I interview remarkable people who think way outside the box in education. To listen to more episodes, learn more about my guests, or become a patron of this ad and sponsor-free show, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. You can also email me at yours truly at blakebowles.com. Now, on to the show. My guest today is Isaac Morehouse, founder of Praxis, a higher education alternative for young people interested in entrepreneurship. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thank you, Blake. It's great to be here. All right. You've started something called Praxis. Tell us what this is and who it's for. Praxis is a 10-month program, a really intense program that combines the best of real-world experience working in businesses alongside entrepreneurs with a really rigorous interdisciplinary online education uh, that has sort of a human guide along with it. And in terms of who it's for, actually, uh, I just came across something the other day. Let me read this to you, and this will, this will frame it up, okay? All right. <laughs> Here we go. Substitute for the word men, uh, men and women. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. That is an actual classified ad that Ernst uh, Shackleton ran when he was recruiting for his, uh, I believe it was 1914 journey down to the South Pole. And what I love about that is that it captures something. It's it, it's almost over the top with the potential dangers of what he's about to embark on. But something about that is so intriguing. It's not salesy marketing. Hey, come have a great time on a fun voyage. You know, it's almost like, are you good enough for this? And that's the mentality. That's sort of what, what we're looking for in terms of who is a good fit for Praxis. There was a time when going to college was a big kind of scary achievement, something that you had to push yourself to be able to do. And now the reverse has happened. Going to college is the default. It's the easy route. It's what everyone does. No one's going to criticize you for it. It's not that difficult to get in and do it. The big scary adventurous thing is to not go to college. That's kind of the big you know, honor and recognition in case of success, as Shackleton would say. So who is Praxis for in a nutshell? we use the sleep in your car test. There are people willing to sleep in their car to get what they want and those who aren't. We want those gritty, determined people who really are self-directed learners and doers and who want to create their own life uh, and education. I like the sleep in the car test. And (laughs) just to be clear, does praxis take place in the uh, in the South Pole or the North Pole. <laughs> it, it is an online program, correct? So you could it, do this from anywhere. You you could you could if you uh, if you can find a business partner uh, in any of those places, that is fine. And we we don't actually make you sleep in your car. Although one of our participants in our first class told me he said, "Hey, I didn't want to tell anybody this at the time, but when I first moved to you know the new city I was working in with my business partner, it took me like a week before I got my apartment. So I literally did sleep in my car one night, and I was." <laughs> I was like, okay, that's not necessarily what we're literally <laughs> asking for, but it's a mentality. It's a mentality. Understood. And how old are the typical participants in your program? Yeah, so our the age range is 18 to 25, typically, or 18 to 20-something. And it's really 
either a supplement or an alternative to college for the people doing it. So I would say about a third of the people who apply are right out of high school and looking to do this instead of college or as a gap year. About a third have have been in college for a year or two. They're frustrated. They're bored. They're tired of cinder block walls and fluorescent lights and uninterested classmates. And they want to get out and try something new unsure whether or not they're going to ever go back to college. And then about a third of them are college grads who feel like they still don't know what they're, they want to do. They don't know what they're good at. They don't have a lot of skills or just knowledge of the, the world of business. Um, you know, a lot of their friends are going to grad school, but it just seems like more of the same. So it's kind of a combination. Um, and really, you know, intelligence, communication skills, uh, all very important in our, our selection process because it is a very, a very competitive program. Um, but that grit and determination and willingness to work to say, yeah, I want to go work in a you know twenty person company where I'm not going to be some intern in a giant cubicle farm making coffee uh, and just sort of sitting around. I've got to be creating value and learning what it takes to run a company uh, through this through this program. All right, let's say I'm looking at the Praxis website and I'm trying to decide what actually goes on there. I'm wondering if this is just another kind of newfangled startup alternative to higher ed program or if there's some real meat and potatoes here. So what is the meat and potatoes of Praxis? What what goes on as a student? So if you make it through the application process, which is a multi-step uh, process, then we match you with one of our business partners. And we have over 200 in our network um, business partners. And they're all over the country. So some participants want to stay in the city that they're currently in. But most of the time, um, they're willing to, to relocate and live and work where their business partner is during the during the 10 month program. So once you're matched up with a business partner, um, again, these are smaller places, usually five to 50 employees where the founder is involved, a lot of substantial work, really seeing a dynamic and growing company. The program begins uh, with, and we have one, by the way, that begins in February every year and one that begins in September. Um, It begins with an opening seminar, four days, a lot of workshops, writing, public speaking, uh, managing your digital brand. We bring in entrepreneurs, academics, uh, founders, venture capitalists to really talk about all aspects of the two sort of prongs of the program, kind of liberal arts and critical thinking ability, as well as just jumping in and and doing things in the world of business, being an entrepreneur. It's all about entrepreneurial thinking and an entrepreneurial mindset. So after the opening seminar, the participants are living and working uh, where their business partner is located. They're working um, usually about 30 hours a week and spending 10 to 20 hours a week on the Praxis curriculum where they're they're logging in to uh, our portal. They've got modules from starting with philosophy, history, economics, business, digital skills, entrepreneurship and life skills and some different workshops thrown in. Um, and, and we can chat a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of how they work through that curriculum. Cause I, I know you were interested in talking about how to, how to handle the, some of the things that you lose when you're doing an online education versus in-person. And we have some, some really unique ways of, of dealing with that, but essentially that's that's the meat and potatoes of the program. And when they complete, when they, they graduate, um, they have a, a portfolio, a certificate of, how they did in the various modules on there. It's all oral exams, no multiple choice, no memorization of facts. Um, they build a website demonstrating their personal project that they developed, what they did at their business partner. And we really help them in the last few months get to whatever their next step is. If they want to launch a business, we help them line them up with potential investors. If they want job offers, we help them with that. 
in most cases, the business partner they've been working for through the program offers them a job at the end of the program. So that's kind of um, that's kind of the the program in a nutshell. So it sounds like an interesting combination of uh, hands-on internship or apprenticeship, where you're actually getting paid uh, with an online curriculum in the liberal arts, but also entrepreneurship. And it sounds like you have a face-to-face meeting in the beginning. Are there any other face-to-face meetings where the whole cohort, the whole Praxis group comes together again? Uh, in the in the meat space, in the flesh, that happens only twice, uh, at the opening seminar and then at the closing seminar and graduation at the end. However, during the, the 10 months, there are weekly group discussions that take place over video conference. Um, and so, it's, you know, maybe our education director and maybe he'll bring on a professor or an entrepreneur as a guest to the group discussion. Sometimes they're specifically about whatever parts of the curriculum they're going through at that time. Other times they're just about sort of general um, ideas about entrepreneurship or philosophy or whatever the topic at hand might be or the guest. And those are, um, those are pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, the, the discussions there are really robust. It's really cool to watch the participants engage with each other. Um, and the technology has gotten better and better to where you can actually do that. We use a software called Zoom uh, that we're really happy with that allows you know many, many screens, many people tuned in at once. So they are interacting in that way. There's a Facebook group where there's constant discussion threads on the material they're going through, their experiences in the program. Uh, they have one-on-one mentoring sessions with, um, you know, whoever their curriculum advisor is during the program. Um, so there's there's a lot of ways that we try to make it human and build that connection and sense of community. Well, I really like the combination of the online element with the working in an actual business element. And I've spent a lot of time, I've spent too much time in my own life trying to figure out how you can constructively piece together these, these elements that let uh, somebody who let a group of people, in this case, who live far away from each, from each other, I assume, you have people coming from all over the country and maybe from other countries, um, participate yeah. and work together while also getting, you know, not being completely online and having that um, kind of often alienating experience of trying to complete like a MOOC on your own without any other people, you know, actually uh, yes. to collaborate with. And so I, is this the balance you're trying to strike, like the best of the online with the best of the face-to-face? Absolutely. Absolutely. And the fact that, you know, two-thirds of their time is spent in that work environment, working with entrepreneurs and things at their business partner and getting that real-world experience is a huge component of it. But even with just the curriculum itself, it's been really amazing um, to to find the best ways to piece this together and, and to, I think, really crack that nut and figure out how to how to make this work. You know, there's a, a saying popularized by um, Mark Andreessen, who was the developer who, who built the first web browser, and now he's a, a famous venture capitalist. He says, software is eating the world. And many people, you know, fear that. And, oh, no, computers are going to take all of our jobs and whatever. But I think that the key takeaway is the future belongs to those who understand how to combine, how to make software and humans complement one another and do those uniquely human things. So there's this huge trend towards online education. You know, it's the future. It's so much more cost effective. You can have classes of infinite size. Isn't this great? And and that is great. That optionality and those innovations are wonderful. Um, But there's a huge part missing. 
it, I mean, the number, the percentages of people that drop out of those courses or don't finish them or don't really participate um, is really high. And it's been a struggle with the new technology to figure out how to combine this access to all these resources with the human touch. And there's different models out there. The Khan Academy has the flip the classroom idea where you go and consume the lectures on your own time via video, and then you do the homework in the classroom setting. There's, there's a lot of cool things happening, but I think what we've been able to do is say, hey, if geography is separating you and you've got this curriculum that you're going through more or less on your own time, but on a, on a similar pace and schedule as some of your, your peers and your cohort with you, You've got ways to interact regularly, engage the material. You know, they have a, an Evernote document that they can all edit conjointly. That's a, a sort of study guide and questions. They've got the Facebook group to have these discussions and chat about it. They've got these weekly discussion groups about the material. And then my favorite part of all is the way that we assess and sort of validate their knowledge on the, the content is through oral exams. They do video oral exams with our education director and an expert or a professor in that field. And it's 30 minutes and they're just talking about what they know. And they either have a working knowledge or they don't. So there's no memorization of facts. It's truly about transforming your thinking rather than just piling a bunch of facts in your head. And that's been a really amazing uh, process. That's interesting. It sounds like you've taken the the thesis or doctoral examination model and just like thrown it onto Skype. And so you're saying that you you have to be able to speak fluently, you know, and with some mastery about this subject. And I like that you don't have any of the the, the traditional testing mechanisms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about it, Blake, you know, if, if your car is broken and you think maybe the carburetor is having trouble, but you don't know a lot about it. Let's say you, you ask two different people. And the first one tells you, yeah, give me uh, a week and I will come back and answer a multiple choice test about carburetors and I'll get like 90% right. And the other one says, oh, well, let me tell you what I know and just starts talking about it, right? Which one do you think has a better level of knowledge about, you know, the workings of a carburetor? And I think that is much more indicative of the way you engage material and the way that it sticks in your mind is whether you can talk about it. And, and one, of the, one of the things that's been hard for some of our participants at first, especially the ones who are really high achieving in the, t- in the normal academic, in the school setting, it's been hard for them to adjust to. If you're in the oral exam, we tell them all the time, look, you guide the discussion. If, if we ask a question about a piece of content that you didn't engage or didn't understand, just say, you know what, I honestly don't know much about that. The part that stuck out to me in the module was X, Y, and Z. And just take control of that conversation. Be open about it. Don't try to bullshit and pretend like you know some fact that you don't. It's not about memorizing facts. It's about how has your thinking been transformed? How has the study of history or economics helped you think more clearly? Have you internalized some of the lessons? Well, Isaac, I I think I would not be a very good student in your program then because the number one skill I learned in school was bullshitting and how to <laughs> bullshit my way through through almost anything with with ease and grace. So, man, I there, hope you put that up on the a, webpage. Like, this is not just a bullshitting it. course. You know, it's funny that you mention that because we we've had one of our um, participants in the first class is, is uh, in sales and he was doing sales as business partner. Great guy, very smart guy. And especially early on in the first couple modules, I mean, he admitted I didn't I didn't dig in into the content. It was a lot more than I expected it to be. It took me longer. I didn't do it as much, but I know a fair amount about philosophy already or economics. And I'm a good talker. I'm quick on my feet. And 
we knew that he hadn't really engaged the material much, but he still did phenomenally well in the oral exams because he had a good understanding of it. And the way that we say it is, look, there's two functions of these exams. One is for your benefit. The process of doing this oral exam itself, being grilled by a, a professor, is a learning process in and of itself. And you're cheating yourself if you don't try to get the most out of it and really master things and see how you stand up. The second part of it is for the outside world. It's Praxis putting our stamp of approval on you that signals this is an intelligent person. So you're either excellent, satisfactory, or incomplete on each module. And if you have an excellent knowledge of that material, and we're comfortable saying that, even if we know you didn't have to do much reading of it because you brought in a lot of knowledge ahead of time, like that signal is still accurate. So we'll put it on there, but we'll, we'll tell you, hey, you got an excellent, but I think you ripped yourself off. You could have gotten more out of the experience. So I want to get to your path and what led you here. But first, I want to dwell on this question that you brought up of how do you communicate a liberal arts education, especially if you're trying to do something that's equivalent to a, a typical four-year college experience um, online, and you know how do you escape those um, you know downfalls of MOOCs or you know any content that's exclusively delivered over a computer? Um, you don't have the peer group, you don't have the professors that are there face to face. There's no office hours. Um, you know how do you claim to make up for that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what we found is that the quality of our participants and the discussions we have, the engagement of the material is much higher than anything I experienced when I was in a, a four-year institution getting a, a philosophy degree. And I think there's a couple reasons for that. You have this sort of self-selection mechanism. If you're doing praxis, you, you already, you're doing it because of your own choice. Often you're doing it uh, in spite of people who think it's weird and don't understand. So you have to have a little bit of courage. You have to really want it and be interested. Um, so you're opting in. And there's this kind of accountability that happens with the group as well, where we all know, hey, look, you're here to get what you want out of the program. It's your program. You're the customer. It's up to you what you want to get. But the other participants, if they're really digging in and saying, hey, I spent, you know, I was up till two in the morning reading over this, you know, part of the curriculum, there's kind of this challenge that happens um, that, that builds this, this community. And, and one of the things that was interesting when I first launched Praxis, I have a lot of friends who are professors and, and many of them, um, you know, sympathetic to, to some of the general ideas were behind, but many of them were really skeptical when I first launched and said, well, look, Isaac, I mean, there's, I don't understand who your market is. There are people for whom college is not the best fit, but those are people who are basically too dumb or too lazy to handle college. And that's it. And they're never going to be able to handle praxis. And I was like, well, I don't look, you've been teaching. You should know this because I do a lot of speaking and seminars and things with college students, high school students. The number of bright, talented A students who are bored and frustrated is just growing exponentially every time I'm, I'm interacting with, with college students. There's a lot of smart ones who college is not too hard for. They're too good for college in some ways. They're bored. And he was like, I don't really believe you. So I brought him on to do our oral exams um, in, in the, I think it was our second class. And he came away, he emailed me and he said, you know, I think he did six oral exams with us. He said, this is what I wish my classes were like. He said, every one of these participants were so engaged. They were so interested in the material. They were enjoying this process. They were, you know, engaging with me this is what a liberal arts education is supposed to be like. I get it now. So I think a lot of that is that self-selection um, and the way that they kind of opt in. But, but we really put it in their, in their hands, Blake. I mean, we tell them at the opening seminar, you are the customer. You should be demanding what you want out of the program from us. 
Don't wait for us to give you hoops to jump through. You demand what you want to get from it. And if you say, hey, I think that doing this is not the best use of my time. I want to do this, or I want to tailor this module in this way, or I want to swap it out with this, we'll help you do that. We'll help you keep you accountable to your own goals. But it's about you taking ownership and demanding value out of the program. So it sounds like you're admitting that there's a heavy self-selection uh, element and that the people who are signing up for the program are are fairly self-motivated. Uh, they could probably handle the academic content of a traditional four-year degree if they wanted to. But for one reason or another, there's something that is leaving them dissatisfied. And that's why they end up coming to you. Is that accurate? That is accurate. And there's, a, there's another cluster of applicants who don't think too much about the curriculum component. They say, hey, look, I really want to be an entrepreneur. I know that I can't learn that in a classroom. Um, so I want to go work with entrepreneurs and Praxis provides that. That's great. Oh, yeah, they've got this curriculum too. That's neat as well. And once they get into the program, they start to see that, wow, this curriculum is really powerful. And furthermore, especially at the opening seminar, when they meet a lot of really successful entrepreneurs, they realize something that I realized years ago when I was in fundraising and interacting with a lot of successful business people, that most of the highly successful entrepreneurs, CEOs, are philosophers. They're deeply philosophical people. Instead of doing thought experiments, they're doing field experiments. They're testing out their ideas, but they're, they're really good at abstract thinking and understanding, um, you know, sort of how pieces fit into a whole system and, and really asking deep, profound questions about the nature of humans, the way they interact with each other, et cetera. And so understanding, oh, now I get it. This is why liberal arts matters for transforming my, my thinking. It doesn't matter if I remember who Descartes is or when he lived, but understanding some of the, the, the mind power that's gained by being able to wrestle with things like the you know, mind-body problem or, or whatever it might be, um, that helps me be a better business person. That actually helps me in the real world. So that, that has been a really cool thing to see as well. Very pragmatic people who the academy often makes to feel like they're stupid or they just don't properly value the liberal arts, they start to see why it matters because they're applying it. I'm glad you're making this case because I feel like there's this widespread idea that entrepreneurship and liberal arts, kind of general academic learning are these two totally separate things and that you can learn the second one without any uh, exposure to the first. And while I think that might be true in some narrow sense of like, yes, you could learn to start an online business or design WordPress themes without knowing, without even having <laughs> heard of Descartes before. But I, I just get this feeling that you're, it's not going to take you very far or that if you ever want to expand the business, if you want to be able to talk eloquently about your reasons for going into it, um, it's, that's going to be troublesome. And so, you know, I, I just haven't seen any other programs out there like yours that are attempting to combine both the liberal arts and the entrepreneurship side of things. Um, like, are there any that that are out there and I'm just not seeing them. Do you have any competitors? I mean, there's, there's a few similar programs, um, a few similar in that they kind of put you in a work setting and you get that sort of experience. I would use the word apprenticeship, but I think it's, it's hasn't been used in so long. It's associated with like being a blacksmith or, so, or something. Yeah. Um, but that apprenticeship model, there's a few, there's a, a place called uh, Institute spelled with an E. Um, it focuses a little bit more on sort of tech and design uh, interests, although they, they are broadening out. Um, and there's a place called the Gap Year Program. Um, it's, it's part of this UnCollege uh, website that they have a, a cool program there. And both of those have a heavy experiential component like we do. 
To my knowledge, neither of them go quite as deep with the curriculum component, or certainly not as deep with the liberal arts portion of the of the curriculum. Um, so, you know, there's some things popping up here and there, and I think there will be more, and I think there ought to be more. I think it makes sense. I think um, from a business side, people who are, who hire, especially in in companies that want people that do more than just follow follow rules, creative thinkers, they understand this. They value liberal arts. Um, even though they may not necessarily think a liberal arts degree is that valuable because it's, it's kind of declining in value. But anyway, uh, it's pretty new. It's pretty new. But there's some little signs here and there of, of more options like this. Let's get to your background. I know that you've been an educator in many different capacities. And I'm sure there's a lot of educators listening who just want to know how you end up starting something this far out. And so you know, <laughs> take us from the beginning. What was your own personal education like as a kid? And then where do you go from there? Yeah, absolutely. I, I was uh, I was homeschooled. Um, my mom homeschooled me and my two siblings, and I really enjoyed it. Um, I loved it. I was not a very academic person. I don't think I read any books uh, until my late <laughs> until my late teens to speak of. Anyway, played a lot of Legos, um, and I went to I went to a private high school for my sophomore year. My siblings were mostly out of the house. I was kind of bored. I had some homeschool friends who had switched to this school, so I thought I'd try it, and I did not dislike it. I had fun. But it was it felt like so artificial. It felt like somebody else's timetable. Uh, we were all kind of herded in 50-minute segments from place to place. It just didn't feel individualized. I was used to controlling my own schedule for the most part. We had a, a pretty loose structure to our homeschooling. Um, and so it kind of bugged me. I felt like I was I was trapped. So I left there, and my last two years of high school, I went to community college, and uh, I loved it because I managed my own schedule. I could work two days a week or three days a week and put all my classes onto the other you know, days of the week, and um, I had more choice in what I was doing, and it was fun. I mean, I was like 15 when I started. My mom had to pick me up and drop me, <laughs> drop me off. Um, I went from there to uh, a four-year university um, where I transferred my credits. So I was able to I was able to finish and, and get my bachelor's when I was nineteen. And it was it was at the four-year institution, the two years I spent there, where I really started to realize how silly and inefficient this whole process was. I was working two or three days a week with this small business owner, and I was learning so much. I was in way over my head every day. I was forced to just figure stuff out on my own, to, to display confidence to customers, even though sometimes I wasn't sure if I could fix the problem. What was the business you, know? you were working for? It was uh, it was back in the old days, like before Wi-Fi was a thing, and we were installing um, cables for high-speed internet when you when you used to have to actually plug in to get high-speed internet. Those so dark, was, dark days. Yeah, dark days, very dark days. We were, I was driving all over the state of Michigan and, and primarily at businesses like car dealerships, running cables for them and, and occasionally setting up their computers on the software end, uh, though I really didn't know what I was doing there. So a lot of fun. I learned a lot. And I was in college. And I was a philosophy major, and I loved I loved philosophy. I loved uh, and political science. Um, I loved many of the ideas that I engaged with, but probably only one out of ten, if that, maybe more like one out of fifteen professors or courses were actually like thought provoking, interesting. Most of my classmates were half asleep all the time. They didn't care. No, it felt like nobody wanted to be there, and everyone felt like they had no choice. And I kind of felt that way too. Like, well, I have to get this piece of paper. You know, this was 12, 13 years ago, so there wasn't any talk of a higher ed bubble. MOOCs didn't exist. Um, even more than today, I would say, the narrative that everyone has to go to college was true. And I remember when I was there, I had this moment where I thought, this is absurd. I'm getting paid to work, and I'm learning five times more on the job. And then I'm turning around and paying all that money back to this university. And the only things I'm learning there 
are things I want to know anyway that I'm doing on my own. I'm sitting at the coffee shop with my buddies until midnight talking about philosophy anyway. It's not because of the class. And I had this idea that I wanted to create a higher ed institution that merged, you know, work with academics and it was tailored by the individual. And I had all these these notions. I even put together a little PowerPoint, um, but I didn't know what to do with it. And I kind of lacked the courage to really to, to really push. You so, had this first idea all the way back in college? At I did. 18 and, or and 19? Yeah. What's funny, Blake, is I, I had forgotten all about it until right about the time when I launched Praxis. I was digging through some old files on my computer and I found the PowerPoint and I just had to laugh because so much of it was so much what I ended up creating with Praxis. But there was this huge decade in between where it was just in on the back burner, kind of bouncing around in my subconscious, I think, and uh, until I kind of accumulated the skills and confidence and social capital I needed to bring something like this to life. So in that intervening decade, I worked in um, the political world, learned that politics was a giant waste of time, the policy world, and then primarily in education with some nonprofits. So I was working in and around college students and high school students on campuses, at seminars, et cetera, doing things like career development, mentoring, building programs, and also eventually fundraising for these nonprofits. So I, I amassed this set of experiences and network that consisted primarily of three groups, educators like college professors, uh, students, both high school and college, and then successful business people who were uh, donors to these types of organizations. And I began to hear just more and more of this growing chorus from all parties that essentially college isn't doing what it's supposed to do. The students were less and less happy. They weren't challenged. They were graduating and they said, I've got debt and a degree, but I don't know what to do and there's no jobs. Meanwhile, the business owners are saying, I don't care what the unemployment numbers are. I'm always hiring. I just can't find good talent. All Wait, these kids have degrees. Let me, it doesn't let me stop it. you there, Isaac. What... Uh, fields are you talking about with these employers who are always hiring? Because I think a lot of college age or recent <laughs> college graduates who might be listening to this might be thinking, what is he talking about? It's, you know, I can hardly <laughs> get hired at Starbucks. And so are, are these specific disciplines you're talking about? You know, really across the board, I would say primarily service industries or uh, even things like manufacturing um, industries, you know, people who own marketing firms, financial firms, investment companies, manufacturing interests. The thing I always hear is, and even if they don't actually have job postings, it's because they just essentially stopped posting job postings because they're just getting a bunch of resumes that suck and it's not worth their time. But you ask any founder, any owner, they're always looking for good help. Even among their own employees, they're looking for someone who wants to be more than a worker, someone who wants to do more than clock in, perform their role, and clock out. You need a lot of those people. That's great. But who are you going to hand this thing off to? You're 60. You're 70. You want to hand it off to the next generation. Maybe your kid's running around the world not taking it seriously. Maybe you don't have kids. Who is there that really takes the vision seriously? Some, some young worker that wants to come in and say, let me learn. Let me take on the vision of this organization and help build it. There's just a dearth of that. And I think there's young people who have the talent and interest, but they don't know that's an option. They're waiting for permission. They're waiting to get chosen. And so I just saw this great need to, to show people, look, even if you don't start your own business, being entrepreneurial, thinking like an entrepreneur, creating your own opportunities, building a network of people. You spend your, your years in school building a network with people who are all your same age and experience range. Um, you're not interacting with people who, at various levels of success in various industries. You're not really building the kind of network and social capital that will help you uh, get ahead. So anyway, get, seeing all these things kind of happen congruently um, 
I felt like there's got to be a better model. And, uh, and then it, it kind of just hit me. So let's talk about your kids. You have kids ages three, five, and 10. And are you, what are you doing with them? Are you, are you a second generation homeschooling family? <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting. So, so what are, what are we doing with them in terms of school? Uh, the, the really short answer is nothing. <laughs> it's a little, it's a little bit of an exaggeration though. Um, and this, and this kind of mirrors my intellectual development, what I'm doing with my kids, what I'm doing with my career and my intellectual journey all kind of run parallel to each other. And I find these weird moments where I'm like, Oh wow, what I've been thinking is now starting to happen in practice. And I didn't even intend that to, to be the case. So growing up homeschooling, I really appreciated it. I really liked it. I liked the freedom it brought. Um, so we intended my wife and I to, to homeschool our kids, but give them the option you know, to not sort of force it on them. If they really want to go to school or do some combination, that's fine. We want to kind of leave it up to them, but we had planned on homeschooling in the way that my mother had wished she homeschooled. She always felt guilty for not providing more structure. Uh, in retrospect, I'm, I'm glad she didn't. Um, so we wanted like a really structured curriculum and all this stuff. And little by little, our experience with my son, who, who's the oldest, he's almost 10 now, was just so difficult. We're, it's like pulling teeth all the time. We were, I remember he was like five. He was very verbally intelligent. And I knew he was capable of reading. So we're trying to get him to read and it was awful. He never wanted to do it. We tried to do it. He was just fighting all the time. Everyone was unhappy and no one was getting anywhere. At the same time I'm experiencing this in my life, I had been reading more and more and doing a lot more study on education, um, just, just sort of the theory of education and uh, methods and things like that. Came across the Sudbury Valley School, some some amazing stuff there. Read you know Daniel Greenberg stuff, Peter Gray, John Taylor Gatto, John Holt. I'm I'm you know Yvonne Illich. I'm reading all this stuff, and my mind is being transformed more and more radically. But my my ideas were being transformed in terms of like what I thought would be preferable for society. And I come to a pretty radical point, and all of a sudden I had this moment where like wait a minute. All these problems with you know sort of society that are outlined in these books about education systems, I'm seeing in our family life with my son, and the solution is the same: just back off, just give him more freedom. And as we slowly started to do that, amazing things happened. We we just gave up trying to do reading lessons with him and trying to have him read. And it was maybe two months later when he wanted to stay up later and have me read Calvin and Hobbes to him, and I said, "No, I'm I'm going to go to bed. It's too late." And then I just overheard him reading it out loud to himself up in his room. I didn't even know he could read. <laughs> and, and somehow he got the motivation all of a sudden. Um, so little by little, my intellectual uh, journey in terms of education, I got more and more radical. And we have with our kids as well. Um, and we've been actually really, really happy with it and really pleased with it. So we essentially unschool. Uh, and our kids are, are pretty much free to, to determine how they spend their time. So on your website, you write entrepreneurship is more than a way of business. It's a way of life. And I'm, I'm wondering if there's this connection here between how you've slowly decided to unschool your own kids and then your own personal focus on entrepreneurship. Um, do you see this? Well, let's just dwell on that for a second. Do, do you see unschooling as creating entrepreneurs? Absolutely. I don't know if entrepreneurs can be created, but I do think that 
entrepreneurship as a category of activity, as a type of, of activity, as a way of thinking, exists in every human. Now, maybe to varying degrees, and people have uh, varying levels of risk tolerance. So if you have a really high risk tolerance, you might be willing to, to do some, some crazy big entrepreneurial stuff, like in the traditional sense, starting a company. If you have a lower risk tolerance, maybe not. But, but I think that way of life is part of every human. And it's one of the things that distinguishes us from all other organisms and makes us human. And you can see this in small children. You see this in babies. You see this in, I mean, think about the most important skills you have in life. Walking, talking, using a computer, driving a car, not being weird in social situations, hopefully. Those are all things you learned entrepreneurially. You tried, you tested. I mean, kids are ridiculous with this. They, they, they try to walk, they try to reach a high object, they move a stool over there to step on it. They're creatively problem solving. They're, they're observing and imitating and adapting, trying again. They don't treat failure as catastrophic. They kind of learn from it. That's how you learn to ride a bike, et cetera. And so I think it's there. And I think largely uh, the way that we parent and educate kids really tends to stifle it and snuff it out so that only the ones who have a huge amount of it and you know a devil-may-care attitude are able to escape this system, keeping that entrepreneurial outlook intact. Most of us, it gets kind of snuffed out um, or not fully snuffed out, but it really, it really gets tampered. Um, and so what I see Praxis doing and the whole idea behind Praxis and what I'm hoping to do with my own kids is really just fan into flame that ember of entrepreneurship that's already there in, in, in entrepreneurship being, again, not just starting a business, but creative problem solving. Isaac, what do you think happens when the number of entrepreneurial people, the number of self-educated people kind of radically increases uh, in a society? And specifically, what do you think is going to happen in our society if more people decide to take the, the kind of path that you are suggesting and that you're promoting through Praxis? Yeah, this is one of my favorite parts. This is kind of the great, uh, I don't know, subversive element of, of what you're trying to do, Blake, of what I'm trying to do and many others. And that is it, it dramatically enhances the kind of freedom that we enjoy in our society uh, if we have more people who are thinking and acting entrepreneurially, who are self, self-directed learners. I've been interested in human freedom for um, you know, 15 years, and many of the, the things I've done professionally and personally have been sort of to advance those ideals, expanding the scope of freedom uh, in the world, whether politically or, or otherwise. And for the longest time, I thought, well, the only way to make that happen, because at the end of the day, the, the beliefs people hold are the ultimate thing that determines the kind of world they live in. So you got to challenge those beliefs. You got to convince people through sort of direct education to change their mind and value freedom more, uh, et cetera. And I think I realized through time that there's kind of another way that's equally, if not more powerful, and that's changing the kind of experiences people have. So, you know, to give a concrete example, if you want to argue that uh, regulations that prohibit competition in the, in the taxi market are inefficient or immoral, they stifle freedom, whatever, you can have a really hard time convincing many people to care, to understand the economics, or to, to get on board and say, yes, taxi cartels are terrible. They should be removed. But then look at the, the other approach that a company like Uber has taken. They simply create an alternative. They, they innovate and offer this ride sharing service uh, to the public. And now people use it. They've experienced it. And now all of a sudden they are 
uh, believers in this alternative, and they suddenly don't care that much about taxi cartels. Uh, the same with the post office. You don't have to convince people that it's inefficient. They just use it less and less because email and FedEx and all these other innovations have occurred. And so you, people who have experienced freedom and lived as the ones uh, in control of their own lives for the most part, and especially if they start as a young age, as an unschooler or whatever, um, whether or not they ever become sort of freedom fighting people as a, in terms of their ideology explicitly, they've lived it and they know freedom and they don't really respond well when they when someone tries to control them or constrain them or tell them what to do. And it's kind of this, you know, freedom on a gut level, on an experiential level. And I think the more people that are self-directed learners and entrepreneurs, uh, the more people in society that will say, no, I'm not just going to go along with this. No, I don't want to be told what to do. I don't want to be nannied and, and you know, corrected at every turn. So I think you alter uh, the way that society is and you have a freer, open, more dynamic world. So I suspect that your approach to education reform probably mimics this this approach you just told me about, which is instead of trying to go in and change a large, uh, very bureaucratic, very entrenched system from the inside, facing an uphill battle all the time, that you just go outside into whatever private realm is available. And in this case, you're creating an alternative in, in private higher education. And you just build something and if people are interested in it and they see the value in it, they sign up for it, and you're you're changing people without ever having to go through the 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 muck. Is that correct? Oh my gosh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I love the the quote. I think it's Michelangelo criticized by creating. There's a, a popular, probably overused, but um, concept of disruptive innovation. Clayton Christensen, a uh, Harvard professor, is sort of made famous and. It's essentially the story that you just outlined. When you have these big institutions and systems that grow over time, and they're, they're doing something valuably, which is why they came to be in, in the first place, but they get increasingly sluggish and bureaucratic, and they don't change very well. They don't adapt well. You're wasting a lot of effort if you're only focusing on reforming them. It's these sort of disruptive, plucky upstarts that innovate around the old system that often bring kind of the greatest change, the greatest innovation. Uh, you know, if even if they don't fully succeed themselves, they often force the, the you know, existing players to adapt to change. So that's exactly right. I spent most of my professional career becoming more and more, further and further removed from the muck or from trying to reform things, you know, from trying to make the political system better by working within it, which just, I realized that I was, I was just going to destroy my own happiness and not really change anything in the process to, you know, higher education. How can this be reformed? How can it be improved to just realizing, Hey, maybe the best thing to do is let them do what they do. Maybe it'll get better. Maybe not and go innovate around it and say, if we were starting from scratch, what would be needed in today's world? In today's world, given the things that you need to succeed, if we were starting from scratch and we have all these resources available to us, what kind of educational experience would we build? And that's exactly what I set out to build. My guest today has been Isaac Morehouse. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you, Blake. This is the Real Education Podcast. This show is produced with the assistance of Zen Zenith, who also created the music. For more episodes, visit blakebowles.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you again soon.